0: A lot of reason for optimism there on Friday night with Alec Manoa, Jesse. He didn't he didn't, fl- he didn't flush that one. That's for sure. They did not flush that one. They said we're putting a lot of stock into this one, baby.
1: It <laughs> felt like they were putting stock in it right from the get go, too. Like right, right even before when he was in the Florida Complex League, he allowed oh, yeah. 11 runs. We're Like ah, it's fine. Well, we'll flush that the one. The process, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> we like what we saw. It's like guys. Yeah, a lot of 11 runs to a bunch of 18-year-olds. Like, let's get real here. But nonetheless, good to see him finally back.
0: Yeah. Fan morning show. Daniele Franceschi, Jesse Rubinoff here on Sportsnet 590. The fan. As somebody in the text line astutely pointed out, where's Ailish and Justin? Well, they're going to be on in the afternoon, 5 to 7. It was not worded as nicely as that, but we'll, we'll, we'll frame it as it was worded nicely like that. 5 to 7. They'll be back here in our morning show slot 6 to 9 in a couple weeks' time. Right now in the afternoon and pleased to be joined by our next guest this insider brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. Visit Don Valley, North It's Ben Nicholson Smith, sports MLB editor co-host of at the letters. Ben, how are you this
2: morning? I'm doing well. Be talking some baseball with you guys.
0: I appreciate you jumping on this morning, Ben. And you were there obviously all weekend in Detroit. Uh, let's start with Alec Manoa. Your prevailing takeaways from the start on friday seeing him back on a big league mount for the first time in over a month what what were your main observations from that outing
2: well you know i wasn't sure what to expect i think like a lot of people um probably including the tigers on the other side of the field and you know he ended up going out there and doing a lot of things really well and it starts with strikes right we saw this all season where Manoa had a lot of trouble throwing strikes like as simple as that can sound He really had difficulty with it uh, for most of the season, but he came out and threw 19 of 23 first pitch strikes. He set a season high in throwing total strikes. So, you know, before we get to the actual results, which were really good as well, just the fact that he was filling up the zone, I thought was huge. So, you know, to pair that with better mechanics, to pair that with some really good results, you know, I know the Tigers aren't a good team, um, despite what happened Saturday, but at the same time, he was able to go out there and hold them to one run over six and not every pitcher does that. So I thought it was a big step forward for Manoa.
1: Benny, one thing we were talking about earlier in the show was just, it seemed like he got his swagger back a little bit and he's someone that seems to feed off the emotion. How big is it? Do you think when Manoa gets rolling, it's one thing to look at the stuff, but it's another thing to look at his demeanor on the mound. I know that's one thing that John Schneider said that the team needed Manoa to work on when he went down to the Florida complex league and then double a work on your demeanor a little bit. And it seemed like he had a little bit more pep in his step. Obviously that comes with the results, but it started pretty early. It seemed like he had a more positive outlook on the mound.
2: It it really did. I think that that's, that's big and it comes from the results. It comes from the stuff It comes from, I think improved and, and improved mechanics and knowing that he can fill up the zone and knowing that he can attack major league hitters. So, you know, we definitely saw that at times. There was even a moment where he was facing a kill, with two strikes. And he thought he put one over the plate for strike three. And he kind of spins towards second base and, and walks struts away. Yeah. from the mound. So he's just done the strikeout. And of course it was called a ball. So he gets back on the mound. He kind of taps his chest and says to the Hey, that's, that's my bad. Sorry about that. And then next pitch, he's able to strike him out. So, That's what you want to see. I mean, you know, of course, you don't want to go over the top. And obviously, Manila did the right thing in gesturing and saying that that was on him. But, you know, to feel uh, really confident in his stuff, um, that's not something we saw from him at every moment in in the course of the first couple months of this season. So I do think we saw that back. And I I do think that's part of the Alc experience when you're watching him on the mound.
0: One of the big observations I had from even just prior to the demotion in general was he looked like fundamentally a different pitcher, just attitude wise. Never mind the stuff, attitude wise, his his moxie on the mound. A that was all gone. But he looked different from the from opening day when we first saw him to when he got demoted. Completely different pitcher in terms of his demeanor on the mound entirely. And to see him finally smile and show some joy out there was very refreshing and encouraging. I present this caveat, Ben, because it, it was the Detroit Tigers, and people are going to point at that and say, well, it's a bottom five offense in all of baseball, and it's, so it's a soft landing spot. What, if anything, did you see that gives you confidence this is repeatable and can be sustained when he faces
2: well, good teams? Yeah, it's it's definitely, you know, when you're facing the Tigers, it's not quite the same as facing, the uh, you know, Atlanta or facing Texas or facing Tampa, these elite offenses in baseball are better. And, and of course, you know, further tests are on the way for Alec Manoa probably as soon as his next outing, which good chance that comes against the San Diego Padres, Soto, Tatis, Bogarts. I mean, that's a really, really tough group. So it doesn't stay easy, but it certainly was a good entry point for Manoa or a good entry point back into uh, the major leagues. And, you know, again, yes, they are a bad major league offense. They are still a major league offense. Yeah. So it's better than anything you're going to see at AAA. It's better than anything you're going to see at A. And, and you know, I'll admit, guys, and, and I've said this many places now, but I had my doubts as to whether they were rushing him back. And I thought that this might have been too soon to face even – Detroit Tigers offense but he certainly went out there and with the results that we saw from him I think he showed that he was ready to face at least the Tigers and you know will will he go out and and dominate against the Angels or the Dodgers or the Rays we'll see right it's a long season there's time for more ups and downs before it all wraps up but step one was really positive
1: if Manoa can just be even serviceable throughout the rest of the season. And it just does wonders for the bullpen and easing their load. And you have the ability to now have Trevor Richards, another inning and two thirds yesterday of scoreless ball. The blue Jays were exposed when Alec Manoa was down in the minors, having to use Richards in sort of an opener role beyond the obvious. What does it do for the bullpen and for the pitching depth to have Alec Manoa back in the rotation, giving them actually five real true starters in the starting rotation.
2: Yeah, I think, like you said, Jesse, I mean, it has big implications for this entire pitching staff. And, you know, there, there was a point, you know, of course, hey, if, if a pitcher's sent down, if a pitcher gets hurt, gets hurt, you can get by for a month. And I think that for the month that Alec Manila was in the minors, the Blue Jays made it work. But in no way is that sustainable. And that's why, you know, of the 30 major league teams Only one was trying a four-man rotation this year, and it was the Blue Jays. And (laughs) it wasn't going to last forever, right? It's not a, it's not like a model that teams like. It's not, you know, obviously it's not the, the ideal. And so, you know, this is now a chance for the Blue Jays to use Trevor Richards in the finale of the Thursday game in the doubleheader in Chicago. He was instrumental in a win that wouldn't have necessarily been possible if he was pitching on Friday. Same with the Trevor Richards appearance that we saw um, against the Tigers. He probably wouldn't have been available to come out of the bullpen um, and to pitch the way he did in relief of Chris Bassett yesterday and what ended up being a win if he had just pitched four innings on Friday. So right there, that's two appearances for Richards that, you know, maybe you're giving those to, I don't know, like, is it a, probably not a Bowden Francis, but is that a Jimmy Garcia? Are you boosting his leverage a little bit? Um, is that a Mitch White? Like, I don't know who ends up getting those innings, but you you end up pushing everyone a little further. And so the benefits of having Manoa back, if he can do this, if he can hold his own for five innings, those benefits will be huge.
0: Speaking with Ben Nicholson-Smith here on the Fan Morning Show, Danielle Franceschi, Jesse Rubinoff. Uh, the other thing, Ben, too, and, and just along the lines of Manoa, it's it's also a boost to, uh, never, I mean, the rotation, we've talked about them getting back to a five-man group, but... Having them get back into their routines, and part of me wonders if those guys uh, we 've heard Jose Barrios talk about it, Chris Bassett, Kevin Gosman, the most you know front facing members of that rotation talk about the impact and the toll that it had taken to be working on a with a four man grouping essentially mixing in a bullpen day and and not being able to get back to their regular routine. How important is it for just even that starting rotation to finally have the ability to get back into their normal rhythm and routine heading into the second half of the season?
2: Yeah, I, I do think there's a lot to be said for that. And, you know, you look at the totals that these guys have, have put up, whether it's Bassett and Barrios, you know, Gosman obviously leading the way. He's on track to go 200 plus innings um, and, and Bassett and Barrios. Like those guys are, are on at a pitch, probably something like 180 or 190, which in today's game is a ton. And, you know, I, I doubt there will be many teams in baseball that have three guys that go 180 innings. But the Blue Jays right now are on pace to be one of one of those teams. I mean, maybe the Phillies with Nola and Wheeler. And, you know, there, there are a couple the Rays could potentially do at Eflin's having a great year. But there, there's not a ton of ball clubs that are going to have three guys taking on that much workload and let's not look past you say kikuchi who doesn't necessarily pitch as deep into games but he's still out there every five days um throwing 100 pitches working hard grinding um taking on all the physical tolls so you know that is a big workload now you're able to ease a little bit for those guys and we got to remember too i mean they were rolling for that month but. That whole time, they were one injury away from going to like a three-man rotation, right? So you got to make sure that those four are getting enough rest to the point that they can continue for the remainder of the season.
0: Earlier in the show, Jesse and I went through and we kind of analyzed where the Jays sit heading into the All-Star break going through. uh, We we, we handed out grades as well, but we posed a question to the text line and we've had some interesting responses. You know, the Jays are 50 and 41 at this point in the season. And I got to say, a lot of the responses we've seen in in the text line to this question have been rather negative or inauspicious in terms of the response and how people are feeling about this team right now. If you could summarize Ben, that first half of the season in one word, what would it be?
2: Well, I'd probably go with frustrating. Um, And I I think that veers a little negative um, because they're in playoff position. They are a good team. They are largely healthy. Um, they have reasons for continued optimism going into the second half. They are even just seven games back of the division. So it hasn't been a bad first half. This is not a bad team. They have not played badly. They're nine games above 500. And again, they're in the second wild card. So, you know, this is, this is very much within their grasp to go out there and have a really good finish to this season. But the reason I say it frustrating is, you know, you look at the fact that they've done all those things that I said, and still the Rays have outplayed them to the point of being seven games above. And this, the goal of this team going into the season was not to compete for a wild card, but it was to compete for an American League East. So to have that goal taken away, I think is somewhat frustrating. To have Kirk and Varsho underperform the way they have, to have Manoa underperform like he has, to have Vladdy underperform the way he has, um, even some of the off-field Um, you know, elements to this season with Anthony Bass, for example, there have been some frustrating, um, some, some troubling moments to this season. So, I live on frustrating that you could make a case that that's a little negative. um, But I I never think the goal of this team was to be seven games out of first place in the division by the all-star break.
1: No, I think frustrating makes a lot of sense. That is one of the words that we got uh, coming through on the text, because you you look at this team, they go 12 runs on 14 hits on Friday night. Then they have five hits in two games, including, including beating no hit by the Detroit Tigers like that is the Toronto Blue Jays in one weekend. Like, how does this continue to happen with this offense where when it looks like they're starting to turn the corner, it feels like the next day there could be no hit. In this case, they actually were. But you're watching this team. It's swing and miss and a lot of strikeouts. And it feels like something has to give with this offense. Are they just not living up to the potential? Are the the parts actually better than the sum of the parts have proven to be? in the first half, or is this just what they are?
2: Well, you know, it's, yeah, it, the offense has not performed to the potential that they have. I think there's no question about that. Um, you know, the the Friday night showing was was great. Um, and Saturday, obviously, I mean, that might be the highlight of the Tigers' season. We'll see. Uh, obviously for the Blue Jays, that was a low point. Offensively to get no hit by one of the worst teams in baseball. And then they come back on Sunday and it looks like, they're going to struggle offensively, but you know, then Danny Jansen is able to really redeem things and, you know, come through in a huge way, which he deserves uh, credit for, for that base hit. And then Nathan Lucas for putting it away. But you know, when I zoom out beyond the granular of these three games, I see a team that's good offensively. Um, You know, they have top 10 on base percentage and slugging percentage. They have top 10 batting average, top 10 WRC plus. So, it's a good offensive team. Now, at the same time, I think there's reason for concern here. I, I think that you look at how old this group is offensively, and you know, are, are you confident that you know, at a time that you don't have necessarily a lot of support in the minor leagues, are you confident that Belt and Merrifield and Springer and Chapman um, and you know, all of these players who are, who are over 30 years old on this team, Kiermeyer as well, are they all going to stay healthy and continue performing this well? I mean, that's a big gamble. So that's where I think, you know, in the context of a team that struggled against left-handed pitching at times, you need to go out and add one more right-handed bat. So that's, that's okay. I mean, that's a good offense that could use some help. So that's not the end of the world. I think that, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, very much in the realm of the the kind of first world problems of major league baseball where you're a contending team that needs to get better, but, this is not a, it's not a perfect offensive group. It's been certainly a frustrating one at times, and they need a lot more from the internal guys because if they're going to get where they want to go, a lot of that improvement is going to have to come from Varsho and Vladdy and Kirk.
0: You mentioned health. They've been very fortunate in that regard, and you even mentioned it earlier when we talked about the starting pitching because, yeah, quite frankly, given where they are in terms of the organizational depth right now with all the – never mind just never mind just the pitching, but across the board at the position player level too, there's not a ton in, in terms of prospect capital that's going to be able to even help supplement the roster at any point in the near future perhaps. So the fact that they've been able to stay healthy for the most part, even look at yesterday, and Jesse and I mentioned it earlier in the show as well. Not having George Springer for two games, it was such a noticeable difference in terms of how the lineup performed and the construction of the lineup when you just remove one guy. Now imagine if anybody goes down then you're really in trouble at that point. So they've had a lot of good fortune in terms of keeping guys healthy up until this point of the season, both in their rotation, in the bullpen, and even um, across the diamond amongst their position players. I wanted to get your thoughts on John Schneider, Ben, because it's his first full season as a Blue Jays manager. It was funny, last, last week he reached 162 game mark, which was uh, technically a first full calendar year as a, as a manager in, in, in Major League Baseball. One of the best records in all of baseball during that stretch, and yet there are people that would still kind of question some of his decision making and what have you, how would you evaluate the job he's done so far this season? And really since he's taken over last summer.
2: Well, it's a good question, Danielle, And I think that, you know, it's probably uh, a good time to do it because it has been, you know, roughly that one year mark. And, you know, to me, of course, every manager in baseball is going to have their decisions questioned. I mean, that's part of the job description. The best managers of all time, I'm sure have just had the the talk radio lines just absolutely blowing up, whether it's a Joe Torrey or, you know, Tony La Russa and his prime, um, you know, just to name a couple of classic managers. Um, But I'm sure even as people hear those names, they probably think, oh, they weren't that good. Because that's the, you know, that's the nature of the job, right? And as for John Schneider, I, I, you know, doing what I do, obviously I'm following along the Jays really closely. And so a lot of the time I'm thinking about, um What pitching change should happen, or what pinch hit decision should happen um and that's for, for me one of the fun parts of the game is you know, for example, yesterday you have the top of the tigers order coming up, you know there are a lot of lefties I'm thinking mesa, and then boom there's mesa, so not to say that you know I, that's that makes the decision the right one because there are a lot of variables that go into it, but all of that to say that you certainly see the logic behind the decisions that John Schneider makes. There is always an explanation for it. Um, Even the times that I don't necessarily get it right off the jump. um, I I'll ask him and there's some sort of reason for it. So there's a logic to it. There is a purpose behind um, the way that he's managing. I think that he's a good communicator. It seems as though his relationships with players are good. So you know, ultimately, he has not won a single playoff game, and he's going to be judged on what he does in the playoffs. And, you know, a regular season series win against the Tigers is not why he was hired. It's part of the reason, but it's certainly not the full reason. So there's a lot of work ahead for Schneider, just as there is for his players. But I think he's a good manager, and I think he's off to a good start.
1: If he sticks around for a while, he might have the services of uh, Arjun Namala, the Blue Jays draft pick from last night. 20th pick out of Strawberry Crest High School in Dover, Florida. Uh, By all accounts, this is a guy with some pretty good power, raw power to all fields. One of the highest ceiling prospects. But Benny, I wanted to get your opinion on the Blue Jays going with a a high school prospect for their draft pick, as opposed to someone maybe more established and coming out of the college ranks. Uh, What do you make of that decision?
2: Well, to me, it's an upside play because, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if you're drafting a 17 year old, you're not doing it because, you know, he's, he's really polished when it comes to, you know, I don't know, running pickoff plays or, you know, maybe uh, some of the, some of the routines or his nutrition or, you know, some of these little, things that add up and and might impress you about a college player where it's the behind the scenes work. And it's, um, you know, with a 17 year old, I think it's much more so a bet on potential. Um, It's a bet on tools. Um, It's a bet on him uh, being able to reach a level of upside that maybe surpasses that of what you see if you're drafting a 22 year old uh, out of college. Um, So it's interesting. Age is one of the big, You know, when you're looking at how a player performs in the minor leagues, there is a huge difference in performing well at Class A as a 19-year-old versus even as a 21-year-old. Age is a big determinant in, you know, how well that player is going to do, how well that player is going to project. It kind of stands to reason, right? If you're going in there against way older competition, you're still just a kid, essentially, um, and you can hold your own. That is a really good sign of things to come. So, um, it's a long way to go. You know, 17 years old, even in a best-case scenario, you're four years away from the major leagues. Um, so this is a long-term bet. But, um, you know, there's, that's that's what the draft is for in a lot of ways. And you don't always have access to these um, 17-year-old uh, players. And this is a great chance to add one of them to the organization in the hopes that a few years from now, um, this this kid could be a top prospect in baseball Um, along the lines of what the Orioles have now in a Jackson holiday, who was recently promoted to double A.
0: Hundred percent, and the, the Orioles have an embarrassment of riches right now. When you look, they just called up Colton Cowser. They've got Jackson Holiday. It's pretty impressive the assortment of talent that they have assembled down in the minor leagues. Um, for the Jays, at least, they're hopeful that he can, you know, help develop the the farm system and get this thing rolling in a positive direction where they can start stockpiling some of these picks again and trying to replenish so that they can continue to even supplement the roster at the major league level. Ben, we thank you for coming on with us this morning. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for doing it. And hope we can uh, do it again soon, sir.
2: My pleasure. Have a great show.
0: There goes Ben Nicholson Smith, Sportsnet MLB editor, co-host of the At the Letters podcast. Jesse. So you can say Arjun Namala is two years away from being two years oh, away. Oh, he's the Bruno. <laughs> okay. Well, you know what though? I, look, I, I think, I think, and by the way, and the credit to Josh Pineglass, I'll give him credit for this. This insider was brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. Visit Don Valley North. Lexus.com. Got to get the read in, Jesse. Um, I will give credit to the Blue Jays for taking a flyer on this guy because it seems like, at least in recent years, with Shane Farrell at the helm, it almost feels like the Jays are start trying to hit home runs with these picks instead of being conservative. And I like that. I think in the draft, especially where you're, there's no guarantee you're going to sign these guys, too, because that's a factor in terms of where they're slotted and how you when you select these players. The fact that you're taking these sort of big swings on trying to hit and say, hey, if that guy hits, it could be a big, massive hit. I think that's the whole purpose of the draft. It's not necessarily to take these guys that are almost ready-made, finished products in a lot of ways, unless you're drafting a Paul Skeens that was first overall. At that rate, okay, then you're trying to get a superstar franchise-altering player. But if you're drafting in different positions here later in the first round, second, third round, whatever the case may be, I think these are the plays that I kind of like, and especially in baseball where it's, there's so many variables you have to account for.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it was a a best player available situation with Arjun because he he was in by many mock draft accounts. He was in the top 10 for a lot of people. And the the broadcast last night spent a lot of time talking about how good this guy could be. And I think when your organization is drafting, that's what you want to see. You want to see the guys with the highest upside because ready-made products, while they might be able to help you on a shorter time frame, It's not as exciting and you want excitement with your organization. And especially when the prospect capital isn't necessarily there, the high upside guys, not necessarily there. Obviously Ricky Tiedemann is in the blue Jays organization, but we don't yet know what he's going to be injury issues so far he's early in his uh, minor league career and we'll see how that pans out but nonetheless to have a guy who's 17 years old seems like the sky is the limit for Arjun Namala and
0: that should be exciting for Blue Jays fans for sure prospect capital is currency in baseball like that's it's a massive a form You're of currency with the Orioles yeah, 100% and this is what makes the Orioles so fascinating is that they're we're what just under a month away from the trade deadline here The Orioles have the cupboards fully stocked and ready to move guys to be able to bolster their roster. That is already very young and very good. And this is what's concerning if you're a Blue Jays fan right now is that the Orioles have surpassed them in terms of the pecking order of where things stand in the AL East and in the American League in general. They just have. Their team is better right now, and they also have more assets available to them at their disposal to improve their roster further. That is why I think – This this is there are two things I thought. okay I like because it's an upside play, but at the same time, it's a guy you can't trade for a while. And the Jays need guys they can trade. Unfortunately, they do need those pieces that they can ship off to bolster the roster a little bit. Before we take a break, I wanted to uh, mix in a couple more text. People jumping in one word to describe the Jays first half. Anonymous mid. And that's an no ode to a song we played. Mid. I like that word. I mid, is, think it's a, mid is very I like apt. That. Yeah. like uh, that. Jordan from East Garifaxa. I think I nailed that, did yeah, I? Yeah, oh, I think so. Yes.
1: I wouldn't know, but yeah.
0: Okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Perplexing. Yeah. I that was a good word
1: There hasn't well. been one positive word. Can no, of not one. No, not one. No, you honestly. listed off, what, 10? And, and I'm, and I'm not
0: skipping over any of the, if there was positive ones coming in, I would read them.
1: To, to the, their credit, we didn't have positive
0: word either. No, we didn't. We describe it no, now, so. uh, uh, yeah. I like perplexing. Uh, shocking was another one. Shocking. Uh, I can read the acronym. I cannot uh, I cannot actually articulate the, the full words here, but WTF. Mm-hmm. <laughs> WTF was one that was submitted. So. Look, I think, I think it's interesting that we're talking about, a, again, a team that's nine games over, and this is the tenor. But here we are. You know, there is concern. There is concern, and I think there's some justified concern when it comes to this team. That's for sure.
1: I think it's the strangest first half of a season that I can remember when you look at how they, how they appear to be on the field versus what their record actually shows. I, I've never seen a disconnect quite like this that we've seen through the first half.
0: All right, time for a break. Alex DeBrinkett, he's on the move. He's gone from Ottawa. He's now a Detroit Red Wing. What does that all mean? We're going to connect with our guy, Frank Cerevalli, on the other side. Well, probably I want to do at the end, mix in our home run derby picks as well. Back in a few. Frank Cerevalli, after the break.
2: Dive deep into Toronto sports and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkus Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Final block of the fan morning show here on a Monday morning. Daniele Franceschi alongside you like that song. Right? Oh my goodness. Are you a classic rock guy? No, no. Well, there's another wrestling connotation here. Uh, Those that shall not be named, <laughs> but another one here that, <laughs> that I really like, I, I even said in Josh's ear, I go pyro hits right there. When the draw, when the bass finally drops oh, unbelievable. Uh, Daniele Franceschi, Jesse Rubinoff here with you on a Monday morning to wrap up the fan morning show. Our next guest, and I got i I got to give credit, uh, uh, excuse me. I got to give credit to Frank Saravelli, who is jumping on with us this morning because he messaged me yesterday afternoon. He said, y- "You guys need me." We've normally have Frank on Monday. He said, "You guys, you guys good? We you don't need me this week? We're good for the summer." I said, "Yeah, we're good, Frank." A couple hours later, sure enough, Alex the bracket's is on the <laughs> move. So here's Frank Saravelli. Frank, how are you this morning, sir?
3: I'm good. Yeah, I thought I was starting summer vacation. The last. Uh... <laughs> Here we
0: are. Yes, we we stole a few uh, a few more minutes from you here this morning uh, as a delay start to your summer vacation. Uh Alex Debrinkin, That's all right. Of course, going to Detroit uh from Ottawa, two-time 40 goal scorer, a guy that obviously we've known he he indicated eh, probably not going to stay long term in Ottawa. How did this deal come together and why was it Detroit ultimately that was able to secure his services?
3: Well, it was slow. Um, And that was the part that really drove the Ottawa Senators crazy. Uh, For one, they wanted to make a move happen. And two, the problem with Alex DeBrinckit and a lot of these other guys that are either RFAs or have their contract expiring one year from now is they have all the control. And the indication from pretty early on in the process, Alex DeBrinckit, Michigan kid, wants to go home and play for the Detroit Red Wings. And he essentially can force the issue there. And that's basically more or less what ended up happening, leaving the Ottawa Senators to try and extract as much as they possibly can in exchange for Debrinket. And if you felt like the return was kind of light, first off, you're not wrong, but that's ultimately the reason why.
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting point. I mean, I look at what the Senators get in return here, and you wonder, they're hamstrung considering it was restricted, and there was going to be an arbitration hearing sometime next month. He refused to sign an extension with the team. So obviously the Sen's not in the strongest negotiating position. Uh, and it's also kind of bizarre to me to do a deal inside the division with a team that is now, you would think, significantly better within the division and perhaps even someone that you're going to be jockeying with for a playoff spot. So how interesting is it to you that the Sens would make a move to Detroit within the division?
3: Yeah, Jesse, that's, that's actually the thing that hurts more than anything. It's not necessarily just in your division. That's the issue. It's also that it's in your division against another team. That's been in the same rebuilding mix as Mm -hmm. your team has been for these last number of years that as you think that there's finally going to possibly maybe somehow be some sort of turnover in the Atlantic Division, the Tampa Bay Lightning take a bit of a step back as their depth has eroded. What happens to the Boston Bruins who aren't nearly the same team as they were last season or at least shouldn't be? You would think that there's some playoff spots up for grabs, and if you're the Ottawa Senators and you want to take one of those steps forward, the last thing you want to do is give the Detroit Red Wings some ammo in order to be able to grab one of those last spots. And in Detroit, they grab a really much-needed scorer. You guys mentioned two-time 40-goal scorer. And although he kind of struggled a bit to fill the net last year in Ottawa relatively, um, still, I think, to me, one of the big things about Alex DeBrinkett's season last year was that he proved that he doesn't – necessarily need to play with Patrick Kane in order to put up some decent numbers. And so now you have a chance to put him with some other, you know, especially high profile playmakers in Detroit guys who can move the puck and all of a sudden perhaps better fit going home. I think there was a couple things that happened for the Sens that really made this, you know, unpalatable at the very least um, to pull off one, the idea in division, of course, uh, to and, and the idea that there's a team that is also in the rebuilding mix, but also this idea that um, you know you look at the 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 Debrinket profile and how he did have somewhat of a disappointing season, and people still, for whatever reason, at, at five seven, look at him and say this is a guy that doesn't help you win. He's a complimentary piece. He's not a driver. Maybe the market changed for him over the last year that also really lessened your ability to get back what you paid for him one year prior. They paid the number seven overall pick plus a second and a third. They didn't get anywhere near that in return. It ended up being the later pick of uh, Boston or Detroit next year, which by most accounts should be Boston, and it should be somewhere in the 20s, I would think, if not the late teens and then DeBrinkert was facing the reality in Detroit where not only did the the Sens knew he wanted to go there but the Red Wings did too and then squeezed him on the term of the contract kept him under 8 million bucks and at 4 years so this was it gives you an indication of how much this deal was like pulling teeth from every angle
1: you bring up the extension that DeBrick had signed, four years AV of $7.875 million. It, it, was it a, an Eiserman masterclass in getting him under $8 million, or is it Signal more of? De sort of realizing he's coming off a bad year and wanting to be in Detroit, a place where they still need to re sign Mort Sider eventually and Lucas Raymond. Like there's still guys that are key to this core's future that are gonna need to be re signed and maybe it's possibly took less uh, to make that more make that easier down the road. No, I think this is
3: that's kind of the wake up call for Alex De right. is This is what the market was willing to bear. And yes. He was giving up some of the leverage of course in signaling that he wanted to go to Detroit. But I also think there's a couple other things in play. You mentioned um, the the future contracts of Cider and Raymond. It's also the cap space or lack of cap space that they had. Think back to the Phillips Zadina mutual termination last week. Mm-hmm. They needed some of that cap space in order to make this happen. And and more than that, um I do think that he was running into a bit of a wall in terms of what the market would bear. You know, this wasn't going to be a guy that was signing for a Timo meyer like extension. Um, I thought the market was closer to seven than it was to nine. Obviously, uh, it ends up being a shade under eight and doesn't get the sort of max term, but at least from his perspective, he goes home, he puts $31.5 million bucks in his jeans, and then is able to hit the free agent market again at age 29, you have a couple monster seasons and you're going to be making way more than that.
0: hundred percent. There's a lot of upside for him as well, even in this deal. Like the, the term is, I mean, four years, but to your point, Frank, getting back on the open market at age 29, you come off a couple of great seasons and the cap goes up. Hey, now you're looking at a pretty significant deal perhaps from Ottawa's standpoint, what what's next for them? There's been I, I noticed uh, I think it was Elliot Freeman mentioned it the other day uh, Vladimir Tarasenko potentially being a fit there. What do you what do you think is next for the Sens after making this move and now freeing up obviously additional cap space and where they're at currently?
3: Yeah, I think part of this Danielli is is actually a blessing in disguise. Uh, first off, you're able to offload a player that clearly didn't want to be there. He's wasn't part of the solution uh second i i was really questioning how many eight million dollar players the Sens could afford like if you go through their roster i think all of a sudden you begin to get pretty top heavy in a hurry and i think when they had signed the drivers that they needed to those long-term deals that by the way are going to look pretty awesome next year or the year after starting then And the Sens are going to be laughing um, that I just wasn't sure they needed another one. And so now they have additional cap space that they can go out and wield. Um, They have been linked to Vladimir Tarasenko. I don't think it's a done deal. Um, I think Tarasenko is really considering all of his options. And a bunch of people were surprised last week when he decided to move on from yet another agent um, to try and find a better deal out there. It seems like he had a bunch of suitors sort of right in the wheelhouse of the market that I thought he would be in, somewhere between five and $6 million a year. And now he went back to the drawing board. I think the Sens have had some interest for a while. And if you think about it from a different perspective, I wonder if in some ways maybe the Sens saved themselves some, some heartache and some trouble here. What if you take the production? I know not a centerpiece or a huge part of the deal by any stretch, but real quietly, Dominic Kubalik puts up I don't know 15 to 20 goals and 45 points last year, and you add him into the mix. Potentially, let's hypothetically say Tarasenko does go there, and Tarasenko is able to give you 25. Are you replacing what you would have gotten? from the brink with those two guys at a much probably smaller pay scale and provides you more flexibility moving forward. And you get the additional first round pick. Like I do think that there's a different alternative view as ugly as this was for the Sens, you know, just based on the year over year transaction and, and the Delta between what you gave up and what you got, it doesn't feel great but I wonder if in the end they might have saved themselves from themselves.
0: And it's also maybe not the worst thing to even disperse some of that production throughout your lineup a little bit. Like, I mean, ideally, certainly you trade, you give up a ton of assets to get the player and to bring it and you want to keep them there. But ultimately, if it ends up being a scenario like you painted, Frank, where they can end up with Tarasenko potentially and and now you've got Dominic Kublik who, yes, is a very serviceable player, it's probably not an, uh, the worst thing in the world for them given the situation they're in. Speaking of top-heavy teams, because you mentioned, other oh, the Sens might be going down that road, especially if they would have held on to debrinkit The Leafs are certainly a top-heavy team, Frank, and there's a lot of people that would be making the, uh, and I saw it last night, immediately. Oh, my God. How is it that Alex immediately, Debrink- like, immediately, debrinkit contract, $7.875 million a season AAV. Why is William Nylander demanding 9 to $10 million is that a false equivalency? And why is it that, based on everything we've heard so far, that Nylander is trying to get into that ballpark?
3: It is a false equivalency, first off. Um, just plot the inconsistency from uh, Alex DeBrinkett and his production, both in goals and points, on a chart, and, and it'll look more like a roller coaster than it will a straight line. And that's not always a knock on him. He did play on some pretty bad teams and I don't, I'd have to go back and look at when his career first started, but I don't think Alex the ever been on a team that's made the playoffs. So that's one thing. Um, so he's played on bad teams. Um, the other is I understand part of where Nylander's coming from only because if you look and unravel the Leafs cap situation, All the other guys around him, where he got jammed on his second contract, they got paid and paid in a groundbreaking, historic, not just have their cake, but eat it too way. And his point now is, hey, I've had some really good seasons. I've shown up and been maybe the one guy that you can count on in the playoffs. I'd argue the only guy that uh, his fire I don't question when it comes to the playoffs. Is there some fire in his belly? And he's saying, look at the cap going up. Look at the, the value that I've provided to you relative to cap the last number of years. And look at the value that I'm going to continue to provide for you over the next number of years, as the cap increases, I want to be here. I want to help you win, but I need to get closer to this number in order to make that happen. Because if not, that's kind of the tough part that the leaps are in is I don't, it's difficult to find play driving wingers and I don't, really hesitate to think that there's going to be someone somewhere on the market that would give him closer to that 10 million dollar number.
1: And that's in fact, what it seems like he's asking for as Frank Saravelli joins us here on the fan morning show, uh, Jesse Rubinoff and Daniele Franceschi. Um, that's the question that I have, Frank, is that it, it appears by all reports and all accounts that William Nylander is looking at a number that's, in the double digit range, but the Leafs are looking at somewhere in the eights or closer to what Alex to was looking at. Like, what is the latest when it comes to that is the Gulf. Do you think just too big for these two parties to be able to, to reach some sort of agreement on this? Because you're getting to a point now where it certainly seems like the Leafs are maybe going to have to, to look at, maybe moving him, but then you look at what to just got in return for the senators. And the return is not that enticing either. So they're kind of stuck with a rock and a hard place here.
3: Yeah. And I think they recognize for a while, Jesse, that they are between a bit of a rock and a hard place. Like it's great to have good players and it's great to have players that people care about and talk about, but given the leverage that the players wield in this situation, given how hard it is to improve your team when making a trade like that if push were to come to shove, that it's not really an enviable position to be in. And where do things stand on the situation? I'll say that I don't think it's gotten to the point or really even close to it that the Leafs feel like this is an impasse or a dead end. I think they have work to do. I think there is a sizable gap, but I think they're trying to keep hammering away at it because I think there's a recognition from both sides that in good faith, they want to try and make this work and that William Nylander wants to be a Leaf and the Leafs want to have him here, that that's really the spot that they're in. Um, However, I've said this since the very beginning I don't think Brad tree living is afraid and would bat an eye at all to, to move William Nylander if, and only if he reaches, he feels like he's reached the dead end and this is never going to work out. I think the worst case scenario is to go into next season for them and just play out the string and say, you know, we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as much as the Leafs want to compete next year and want to, have another crack at it, another kick at the can. You know, I think being in a spot where they let William Nylander walk next summer for nothing um, doesn't really make a lot of sense.
0: It's an interesting position that they're in an interesting situation for Bradtree living to step into. Cause not only does he have Nylander to worry about, he's got Austin Matthews that he's trying to lock up too, long-term and get the salary cap started out, which they're over now. So it'll be fascinating to see how it all unfolds. Frank, we appreciate you taking some time out of your summer vacation. Now you can officially begin. Thank you for coming on this morning. Appreciate you doing it. Thanks, Frank. Sounds good, guys. Have a good week. There he goes. Frank Saravalli from dailyfaceoff.com or NHL Insider and President of Hockey Content over at Daily Faceoff. That's that that whole the whole Nylander discussion is fascinating to me, Jesse. And Frank touched on it there, the that it's maybe a little untenable to be able to to keep him on the roster. And through the end of next season sort of walk them to free agency i would actually argue i i don't i don't know that it's the worst case scenario given where they're at right now i understand the sentiment would be god how did you let him walk for nothing but they're in a window where they're trying to win a championship and he objectively he makes your team better
1: that's the difference from the raptors situation exactly. right cuz we were talking but you were specifically on the other side of Correct. the fred for the fred van persich situation. you were saying well They put themselves in a situation where they didn't get anything in return for Fred Van Vliet, and that was a massive mistake. But they're not contenders. They're not in their win-now mode. They should be rebuilding. They haven't decided to take that plunge yet, but that's where they should be, whereas the Toronto Maple Leafs, they have been in win-now mode for quite some time, and they remain there. This is the window.
0: This is it for them. That's the window. Uh, Before we wrap up, home run derby tonight here on Sportsnet. You can catch it all. Quickly, you're, who, who's your winner? Who's your prediction? Who you got to win this thing? Obviously, Vladdy. Oh, okay. It's so good. We're on the same page. You want to know why? Back. John Schneider's pitching. I love it. Let's go. It's funny because all week last week, even, uh, yeah, all week last week, I was listening. Blake has been asking every guest on his show, uh, prediction time. And nobody's picked Vladdy. So the fact that you and I are on, are on the same page here, we're going with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I love it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think it should be fun.
1: It's always a good show. I do like the, uh, hometown pick and Julio Rodriguez. Uh, too. I think that's, uh, these,
0: he's, I like the polar bear in that. He's, he's just got
1: a little bit of the star power too. Yeah. He's got the star swagger. And I feel like playing in front of the home crowd, he might want to put on a bit of a show. And we've seen it before we saw with Bryce Harper a yep. number of years ago. So it, it's, if I'm looking for a longer shot, it would be Julio Rodriguez. Okay.
0: All right. That's fair enough. I think it'll be a good one. That's a great field. That's for sure. The list of participants are star studded. No doubt about that. Uh, Jesse, this has been fun. Uh, it's been great doing this. Fun having Loved it, man. three had hours. A, had a blast. Flew by, man. Really it Flew did. by. It's been a lot of fun. Um, yes, we thank all our guests, Frank Saravali, Aaron Rose, Ben Nicholson-Smith for coming on. Ailish and Justin, 5 to 7 this afternoon. Coming up right after us, it's time for the J.D. Bunkus podcast. Appreciate you all listening. Have a wonderful Monday, and we'll catch you all again tomorrow.